you have to create your own reality through your own truth. And it's not down to what everybody else believes. Because through you believing it and being committed to it, you'll be able to create your own reality. And whether that's making yourself better through a placebo tablet, maybe that's through moving on for a relationship or a job that doesn't work for you. Our capability is way beyond our wildest imagination. Welcome everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence or people that have just had a unique peek into an alternate world of influence, as is today's conversation, to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, what happens when we fuse technology with storytelling? When we hack the brain in order to overcome fear and ultimately influence how we experience the world around us? Our next guest refers to herself as a storyteller from the future. Karen Palmer is an award-winning, multidisciplinary, immersive filmmaker. So glad I got that right. Merging film, gaming, technology, and neuroscience to create emotionally responsive experiences. Her, her most notorious project, and the one that actually caught our attention, was created back in 2016, when she created a film called Riot. Now, Riot was not your ordinary film. Riot is an extraordinary fusion of tech and storytelling. It takes viewers through an immersive 3D experience of an actual riot. Think of an actual riot on the streets of London. The only difference being that through the use of AI, facial recognition and 3D technology, everything that happens throughout the course of the film is dictated by the emotions of the viewer. So each viewer has a unique experience of riot how the characters behave, whether the action slows down or speeds up, based purely on how they are emotionally responding to the story itself. In other words, how the film watches them. So why is that important? Other than, I believe, this being the method of storytelling, we will probably all consider to be normal 10 years from now. It is important because it gives viewers a real-time experience of how their own emotions and responses and triggers, often subconscious in the form of facial expressions and body language, significantly impact how they experience the world and how the world experiences them. Now, have you, have you ever wondered how your internal stories, you know, that internal narrative that chatters on most of the day about events, people, situations, how it impacts the story of your life and how it unfolds? If you haven't, you should. It's literally one of the most life and influence-altering lines of exploration you can go on. And if you have, Karen's work will blow your mind. In addition to Riot, Karen is also a pioneer of neurogaming, basically where immersive tech meets gaming, in which your mind once again becomes a remote control in an incredible experience that includes film, wearable technology, and neuroscience. Basically, think Fortnite on crack. Her work, Sync Self and Sync Self 2, they're live action video games, the difference being that you interact with them by wearing EEG headset on your brain. I'm hoping I've got that right. And that, 
that headset measures your level of focus and then it adapts the game to reflect your state of mind at that particular time. And if this lady wasn't fascinating enough, as if that wasn't enough, she also merges her passion for cutting-edge neurostorytelling with her other passion, parkour. And you've probably seen footage of parkour before, even if you didn't know what it was. It's basically insanely agile people clambering up and leaping over urban walls, buildings, obstacles, all in one long, continuous movement of gymnastics meets martial arts. But what I didn't know before this conversation was the philosophy of mindfulness that sits behind parkour. Just like Riot, Sync Self, and Neurogaming, Karen uses her practice of parkour as an immediate feedback loop, a way to train her mind to stay in a state of total focus. Because let's face it, there is no immediate feedback loop more compelling than falling face first onto concrete. So, Let's merge all of those things, neuro-storytelling, neuro-gaming, parkour, and here are some of the topics and the learnings we dove into as part of this conversation. Why neuro-storytelling is the future, and it is, and how we can use it to build new neurological pathways in our brain. How seeing ourselves, our biases, our triggers, reflected on the screen immediately before us, will and can help us take better control of our own lives. Why Courage is simply a software download. She has an amazing story about how she applied this to her own life and how to run a total erase and install on your own mind. The doors that this type of future storytelling opens for humanity, in particular, how we teach empathy and accelerated leadership. I think this one is just huge by itself. Why we will soon be taking the leap from biohacking, think Fitbits and all the other various wearable technology we now have available, to brain hacking, to literally tracking the habits of our brain and then interceding. And finally, why you never ever have to be the unwilling participant in somebody else's story. A conversation with Karen is a little like parkour in itself. And luckily I was just about fit enough to keep up. We leapt in and out of topics, arcs, stories and ideas, but always, hopefully with the same intention, seeking to understand how the future of storytelling can and will not only revolutionize how we entertain and communicate important ideas, but also fundamentally change the role we consider ourselves to have as continual writers of our own experience. So, enough from me. Grab yourself a coffee or whatever your current adrenaline kick of choice and get ready to have your mind blown. Most of you that have either listened to me before, met me in any capacity, buying a coffee, whatever, will know that I consider storytelling to be one of the most powerful tools of influence available. And this one takes it to a whole new level. Please enjoy my conversation with the fascinating Karen Palmer. Welcome to the podcast, Karen Palmer. Thank you for having me, Julie. You are very welcome. We have already swapped <laughs> London at Christmas time stories, so I feel like we can get straight straight into it now. <laughs> do that. Let's do that. So the, the question that I usually always ask at the beginning of any podcast is whether or not you consider yourself to be an introvert 
or an extrovert? And and the reason I ask that question is because I feel like there's often this myth or this belief out there that in order to stand for an idea, to stand up and be heard, to create a movement or a change, you need to be an extrovert. So I'm interested. Introvert or extrovert? Um, definitely super duper extroverted in terms of I love talking to people and I love I love kind of pushing myself to be out there where sometimes you might not want to be in a room with people you don't know you just want to be at home in bed but you're just like oh I'm going to talk to this person uh I'll only be here for five minutes and then you're in the room for three hours but at the same time I've definitely got like uh, introverted side sometimes where I do just want to stay at home for three days and work and not talk to anybody. So at the at the beginning of your TED talk, you you said, I am part of an invisible movement. It has no title and no hero. I loved that, no hero. It's a revolution in storytelling. So let's start there. How would you describe this revolution? Wow, I love that question because <laughs> Before I even get into your answer, I did that TEDx talk at the Sydney Opera House um, about two and a half years ago. And (laughs) just before I even answer your question, tell you a very quick story is that I wrote the TED talk before I got there. And then when I got there, I realized that the TEDx talk didn't work. And that was 48 hours before the talk. And I had to write a whole new talk. And for, I think it was a 15 minute talk um, in 48 hours. And that and sounds to anyone that's never written a talk before, that sounds very doable. But in actual fact, that that's a very short amount of time to write to write a TED talk. To write a TED talk that's going to wow and connect. You can write a talk, but to say something that's really going to connect with people. And I was almost overwhelmed. And I was like, no, I just have to go deep and kind of find what it is that I really want to say as opposed to something like I spent three months writing. <laughs> and that that feeling that I was part of something that's bigger than me became the overriding um, emotion that I needed to convey. And when I came up with that line, um, I was like, okay, I'm fine, because this is the truth. This is what I feel, that I'm part of something, and I'm the first person to kind of name it and put my finger on it, but hell no, can I be the only person in the world? And also, I had come out of a background of working in film and television and media and I had been using media in like a commercial way and I was very aware of the power of just linear film over the past decade having made music videos and then seeing people doing the dances in nightclubs or seeing people wearing the styling that I created with the stylist music video on the street I was like wow this is really projecting identities and messages onto people so I was like, I, we've gotta, there's got to be a way to use this powerful tool to empower people in some way. And I can't be the only person. And if I can just let the people know I recognise his existence like a beacon, I feel that it will draw people, other people out of the woodwork. <laughs> Even if they don't see my talk, that it will resonate and will connect in some way. So we're in a visible movement um, of, I would say now, two and a half years later, I can put my finger on it more, of um, creatives who are using um, the craft of media to raise people's consciousness and make them aware and empower them through media, as opposed to 
um, I would go as far as to say disempowering them through the power of media. When you, when you say empower people, can you take me further into that? Because it goes a lot deeper than that. It goes into the world of, of neuro-storytelling, neuro-gaming, which I know you have said is your contribution to this movement. Talk me through that. Okay, so um, wh- when I did the TEDx talk, I had like these ideas and then I manifested them and then now in retrospect, I'm, I can dissect for you exactly what I said. But at the time, I wouldn't be able to have done that two and a half years ago. I'd have just said it's this thing. So basically, I've created storytelling experiences that combine um, artificial intelligence, facial recognition, um, machine learning, neuroscience, and the parkour philosophy of moving through fear to raise your consciousness and make you aware of your subconscious behavior. So how it works with the film I made, Riot, um, is that you watch the film, um, you stand in front of like an installation and a projected screen, and you have the set of like a riot all around you, that like debris on the floor. And as you watch the film, the film watches you back with the artificial intelligence and the facial recognition monitoring you. And if you respond to the film with fear, the narrative branches in real time in one direction, or if you branch, respond with anger, it branches in another. And this is all done to make you aware of your subconscious behavior and your habitual programming. So if you got fear and you didn't like the response, the narrative for fear, you could go back into the experience and change the reaction because now you're conscious of it, you're more aware. You can break through that habitual programming. What it does is that it makes you aware that in the same way that your emotions affect the narrative of the film in the installation, your emotions affect the narrative of your life. That you're not, that life isn't happening to you. Your emotions, your feelings, your intentions are influencing the world around you. So I'm enabling you to become aware of that and then harness and select the appropriate response, which, okay, it's not easy, but you're now consciously going to have a way to practice. I'm not talking about sitting down and visualization and meditation, which is something which is great. I'm talking about in real time, you're changing your emotions in the world that's responding to you like a feedback loop. There's two things you said there that really struck me. The first one was, if I'd have asked you two and a half years ago, you would have you would have said it was just this this brain this brainwave that hit you and you weren't sure how it was going to be created but it felt really right and i can tell you every every single powerful or influential person i've ever spoken to it starts that way just something oh, that's that, great thank, yeah. thank goodness for that eh <laughs> but it does because it's it's something that you just you feel you need to say out loud and if anyone asked you any more about it you would you would kind of um and stutter and, and because you don't know much more about it other than it feels like it needs to be there. Like it, it it always starts that way and it's intriguing that just the the magic of saying it out loud without anything else creates this pathway where it, it has an opportunity, not always, but it has an opportunity to come into being. The second thing that you said, which I think is worth exploring, is that the game watches you back. The AI part of the game watches you back. So just go a little bit deeper into that for a moment. What exactly 
do you monitor? I know you monitor things like breathing and sweat and what gets monitored. I just want to make a comment on your first point is that that thing about having a feeling that is actually, I'm not a Christian person, but that is what, and you have a feeling about something, you just have to kind of um, talk about it. That is what is meant when they say man is made in the image of God, is that that's how I interpret it. And that's how other many scholars have interpreted it, that you have a feeling and then you have this um, image in, and then you have this will and then you manifest something. It's like everything around you in your room that you're in, the chair, the bed, the curtain, the, the, the building, somebody thought of it first and then they actualized it through their will and commitment. That's how, that's how we exist. And that's called living. You know, that's what I've understood in this journey as a creative, that you're not supposed to have all the answers to start with. And that's what holds people back. They're like, oh, I don't know how to do it, so I didn't start. No one knows how to do it. <laughs> you have to start in faith and belief. That's all you need. I had this conversation with the, someone who's in, in an entrepreneurial startup just last week. And I, I said, you know, the thing that I wish that I had known back in the beginning that I didn't know, and I know for a fact now, is that we're all, we're all making this up as we go. You know, nobody has the answers. We're all just doing the best we can with the information that we've got. And I think it's very easy to believe that everybody else knows what they're doing and you're the only one that doesn't. It's experience. You, it's not just theory. And your own experience trumps everything in life because you could do something that might work for you and someone else could do that same thing that doesn't work for them. So it doesn't mean it's universally doesn't work. You just got to know from your first-hand experience what works for you with your certain personality traits, with what you're trying to do in the environment you're in. And that is honest to God living, just having the belief to go out there and do it. Nobody has the answers to begin with for everything. The point is that, and this is like a parkour thing, because I'm really into parkour, which I go into in a bit, but um, this kind of belief meets commitment and will. That's kind of like, and visualization and understanding of self is like part of a formula to get where you're going. Not a business plan, not, um, you know, filling out all these application forms that are asking you. It just comes down to knowing yourself and just believing in what you're doing and commit commitment. Because there's going to be times when things don't work and you're going to have major obstacles. That's like a given. But the point is that you kind of got your eye on the prize enough that you're going to figure out how to make it work. And that is something which I like you were talking about as entrepreneurial person is something that people don't tell you have to kind of figure it out for yourself. Um, and that's you just make that through life experience because you're the people that don't give up. I was talking to a surfer and a professional surfer, and he was saying that the way that that sounds in his mind when he's when he's just coming up to a massive a wave that could literally kill him. And all he thinks is, you know, hold the line, hold the line hold the line, like just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And that's all you've got. When you're in that process, you've said it out loud, you've started something, even if just inside your own body and will, just keep moving, just keep moving, just keep moving. I'm into parkour and that's what's really shaped me as, a, as one of the things really shaped me as a person. So parkour is an urban inner city sport that originated in France and it's really about moving from a point A to point B as efficiently as possible. And there's loads of YouTube videos about young kids doing rooftop 
jumps when you kind of Google parkour. But it's a lot more to parkour than that. It's very much about understanding of self. And to me, it's like moving meditation. It's just about being in the flow. And one thing that resonates with me, similar with what you talked about with the surfer, was when we're doing, a, if I do a small jump to, to over a distance, say a few feet um, on the ground, it's a, it's a technique. If I'm doing that same jump, the same distance, but it's at a rooftop, the technique is exactly the same. It's just that the distance has changed. So with the surfer, the technique of him doing what he's doing is the same. It's just there's more at stake. So with the, both those things, it's just about being in the flow um, and being in the zone and just doing what you do, which is basically back to your neurological um, programming in your brain because your body knows what to do. Your muscle memory knows what to do. But what happens is that you can freak it out by worrying and becoming anxious and becoming fearful. And that's why um, fear to me is like a real fundamental thing in all my work because moving through fear to me is the basis of everything that you want to achieve in life is understanding yourself and moving through fear. It doesn't matter what it is you're trying to do to a large extent, but if you can master yourself and move through your own fear, then that's the biggest obstacle that you have to um, override. Um, I should now answer your question <laughs> about, um, no, it's me. I, I should be apologizing about how does it work with the, um, so let's start with, um, if you can summarize neurogaming, you know, what it is, how does it work? And then what do you monitor? What do you monitor in order for the AI to be watching you? Artificial intelligence is a very particular type of intelligence that's been created in the computer where you're basically teaching it things. And we have taught it a series of, um, they're called sets and neural nets. So a neural net is a frame and a data set is like a library. Like, so I've had people come in and they've had them made expressions of calm, anger and fear. And then we fed that into the, the um, neural net as a structure and labeled it saying, this is a face of fear and said, and it's mapped the mathematical points on the person's face. And then we said, this is the face of anger. And it's those points. And then it's kind of done like a game of snap. When the person comes and watches the film, it says, ding, that's the same as the fear face. Artificial intelligence is human intelligence exhibited by machines. So what it is, is that people are hearing this terminology everywhere, but nobody's it's not often that people are putting like um, a definition on it. So human artificial intelligence is human intelligence exhibited by machines. Um, so that's where a, a human is training the machine. Machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence that provides computers with the ability to learn without being explicitly programmed now that may sound like something from a sci-fi film because it is basically that means that a human will tra train their computer through machine learning networks such as um, a neural net and it will kind of say okay this is fear this is anger and then someone will come in and their face will probably be a combination between fear and anger and the computer will say Oh, that's fear and anger, but maybe there's something else going on. So maybe it's maybe that person's an angry person. So it's not 
always accurate and the computer is open to misinterpretation the same way that people are. In the case of my installation, um, it's about, I would say, 75% accuracy, which is extremely high. Most AIs and machine learning is about 60%. And with my installation, it's about training and making you conscious and I can talk to people while they're there. The problem comes in when you have these things out in the world and these are using these same mechanics and mechanisms to kind of maybe make decisions which is going to affect people's lives. Um, and that's when things could become more um, consequential. And that's when I made my third definition myself, which is artificial stupidity, <laughs> that humans are responsible for building in the intelligence. So, you know, at, in there, the com computers can be as stupid as people can be. You said that the neurogaming and neurostorytelling actually isn't about tech, which, which I thought was interesting. You know, for something that is, it is obviously quite sophisticated in its technology. What, what is it about for you? That is a perfect question after all that heavy tech stuff. Thank you very much. So it's a, for me, it's a, I am an artist. I'm actually, my title now is the storyteller from the future. And I've come back to enable people to survive what is to come. And so at this time for me to access people I and kind of captivate their interest in a time where their interest is being um, hoodwinked and I've got to fight for that attention is that I have to use a tool of technology to engage with people. I can't use sculpture. Who's going to look at that? It's going to be very limiting in terms of a demographic. So in this time, most people's kind of um, digital crack is technology. So for me to engage with people, that is the form of storytelling that I've had to use. But that is just a vehicle. Once I've got your attention, I'm, my objective is to raise your consciousness. So the other things which it's really about is moving through fear, um, neuroscience to enable you to be in control of um, programming your habitual behavior as opposed to um, being played <laughs> and being influenced and manipulated by the media and the commercials industry and everything which knows and has knows all these industries out there from music to and, and entertainment to um, news outlets and social media, which have fleets of neuroscientists working with them to know how to enable you to become addicted. Um, I'm making, I'm giving you all these tools to yourself so that you can um, build a better you, you can program a better you. So that's um, neuroscience, that's the understanding of the design of technology. I also am very much into um, quantum physics and also something called epigenetics, um, which to me are both like Western scientific terms for spirituality because they can kind of quantify and measure spirit. Um, the neuroscience is about talks about this holographic universe and how we can kind of um, influence the world around us, which then goes back to man is made in the image of God. Um, and epigenetics talks about how we're not really governed by our genes, um, that we are, um, we're part of the decision making of our body by our conscious intent. So I, and then I'm, what's really, really guiding me as well as this parkour philosophy of moving through fear, 
So I wrap all these things together in a nice bow with film and cool film and cool music to kind of draw you in. And if I give you just a couple of examples of what happens. So I'm going to tell you a couple of stories here is that I showed the installation most of the time when people go through the right installation, most of the time they're quite affected in some Actually, way. Or just to interrupt you for a second, mm -hmm. just to interrupt you for a second, just walk us through the first minute or so of the riot okay. installation, just so we can get a feel of, so you, you, you go in, you sit down, I'm assuming. So what happens is you go wherever it is, you kind of go to like what would be an entrance place and then you have to ask permission to get past the entrance. And there will be a riot, somebody, an actor, in a riot costume there, standing there, intimidating you. So, and before you get there, there, you'll see a sign for riot and he'll ask you or she'll ask you, have you come for riot? And then you'll say yes. And then they'll say, have you got any weapons on you? And then you'll probably say no, unless you're a bit cheeky, which is cool because we want to bring your personality out from now. And then if you say, and then the next question is, do you have anything that can be construed as a weapon? And that's when people start to have fun. Like some people have said, oh yeah, my phone. Another lady, a black lady um, said, my mind. Um, some people said the glass in my hand. You know, it kind of starts to reflect your own personality. So then you're, you're kind of intimidated. Then you're given way to go through. And then you're standing, you're not allowed to really sit. You're standing in a space, I need you to feel uncomfortable. And you're watching a projection that's probably about um, six foot wide that's being projected onto a screen. You smell, you have like um, a smoke machine and you smell the smell of smoke and you're standing in an environment where you have debris around you from a um, what would be a disturbance. Like you have an overturned dustbin, you have rubbish, you have a street cone, you have police tape. And you're in a scaffolding construct of... Um, because around you is something called ambisonic sound, which is like eight speakers, which is the closest to simulating the human, how the human ear works. So you're completely immersed and already your sensory stimulated before the film's even started. Then, and the, the, on top of the film is a webcam that the facial recognition is watching you back. Then you watch the introduction of a film about a disturbance in New York with police and then that starts to get you quite nervous and then it goes into a scene which I've filmed where you're kind of separate from the, the group, the demo, the mob and you're kind of isolated and separated and then you're coming into contact with various characters in the film. So a riot cop will confront you directly and talk to you and ask you what are you doing here and you need to get out of this. It's a it's um a quarantined it's an area which you shouldn't be in. It's a private closed off area, and depending on how you respond to the cop with your emotions, that will determine the next state of the narrative. So the the, the neural net, the data set in the artificial intelligence, is um, monitoring your facial expression to determine how you responded to the cop. And then the narrative will respond. So if you're angry, the narrative will branch differently than if you're calm or if you're fearful. And so how do people's, how do people's decisions change as the, either as the game continues or as they play multiple times over and over again? Can you, can you describe any moments that have, that have really stood yes, up to you? Yes, this is my favourite story, actually, is that I was showing the installation in Armory Arts Week in New York and um, a lady did the experience and she got fear. 
And when you get fear with the right cop, he um, detains you because he sees you as nervous and you could be a bit of a threat. So he's arrested you. And that's the end. Like, you're, you're the, the riot experience finishes. And I said to her, because I'm always there, this is like the part of the experience which I didn't create, but evolved um, very organically. Because I always go with the installation because it's my work and it's quite a complex thing to set up. And I also love to get feedback but I didn't realize that I was going to be a part of the user experience. So when it finished, I always ask people, you know, how was that for you? Was that authentic? And the lady in question, um, a young, maybe 35-year-old white lady in New York, um, she said, yeah, I did feel nervous. And I said, would you like to have another go? Because that's the point. Now you're conscious of your subconscious behavior. You can, in theory, reprogram your brain. And she said, I want to reprogram my brain, but I don't want another go. I was like, wow, that's so weird. You want to reprogram your brain. I said, what can I ask why that is? And she said, well, I'll tell you because I'll never, ever see you again. I'm in AA and I'm looking at what's triggering my addictions. I said, wow, that's so deep. So we spoke again for like another five minutes. And then she said, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm really intrigued because I felt myself making myself smaller in the game. And I said, that's really like um, how an animal feels if you watch a wildlife program and they're under threat, like they make themselves smaller. And she said, you know what? I really want to have another go. So she gave it a go. She went into the right experience again. She was very nervous and she got past the first level, but then she got stuck at the second level again with fear because there's four levels in total. And I said, how was that? Did you feel a difference? She said, yes, I felt myself pushing past making myself smaller, but I couldn't actually maintain it. Um, and I said, but now that you felt that feeling, like you're pushing past the muscle, do you think you could access it again in real life? And she said, having done it once in this environment, she thinks she could. And I gave her a hug and she left. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, does it, has it ever... <laughs> Ask this question: Has it has it ever backfired? Not in, a, not in a terrible way, but just gone in a direction that you didn't expect it to. You know what I've got to say, right? Is that almost every most of the ways that happen, I didn't expect because I looked at notes I wrote like three, four years earlier about what I was trying to achieve and gone, oh shit, it does this. Like I had, I want to make people conscious of their subconscious behavior to become their true selves. Like, it's so kind of abstract. How can art and tech really do that? And then I've been in experiences and people have started to cry. Like, and I'm like, what the, I don't understand. I, you, why are you doing this? And it's like, so I was showing it at the um, Future of Storytelling Festival, also in New York. And um, the, I, I, after a year of showing it, I realized that, there was like a really big um, intentional outpouring, emotional outpouring that this was cathartically, was happening cathartically. So I was starting to build in not just myself talking to people, but what's called like an emotional decompression. So my lovely fiance, who's always supporting me, bless him, Gary, he would, and he's also a videographer, he would come when I'd set up these installations. I'd have teams there helping me, but when you've got somebody who can help you troubleshoot, who knows you, that's really great. So... I did the installation in New York and the lady came through the experience and I said, okay, next in, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm fine. And I looked at her face and she's not okay. But I had the next person ready to roll. 
because it's one person at a time. And I said to why can you go speak to my fiance? He's in the corner there. He's kind of has a camera and he would love to talk to you. He's a very lovely, heartfelt person. So I introduced them to us. I said, Gary, can you take care of this lady? And then I started putting more on people through the experience. An hour later, I turned around and she was still there and she'd been crying. And another lady had come back from the day before and had joined her. She'd come back because she was so, she couldn't stop thinking and talking about how the experience had affected her. And she'd brought a friend. And all these three ladies were engaged in a very in-deep, a very in-depth emotional discussion about how it had affected them and how in completely different ways that they hadn't expected, but how it had enabled them to kind of um, reflect on their life and how situations had um, affected them in that way. And it had caused them to kind of have to stop and reflect and deal with this emotion um, at a time where they thought they'd just gone to see an arty, you know, film. They didn't expect for this to happen. So with their story, I wasn't there. But and to give an example of what this conversation looks like is I also had shown the exhibition a year previous at another event. Before, and I was before I had somebody, I was talking to someone, but I wasn't always there and I hadn't had this person in place. And this lady had had a quite profound experience and she'd left. And then I went to show the work in IDFA in, um, I went to have a meeting about the work in IDFA in um, Amsterdam. And I met this, this same lady, a different lady, the, the lady from the year before in the street corner. And she said, um, I need to talk to you about what happened with your installation a few months ago. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, I was brought up in Argentina and I was brought up in a military state. And every time we would be stopped, we'd be patted down. And that's something I became desensitized to. And I kind of dealt with it and moved on. And then when I saw your installation and I saw this kind of um, police riot cops and how they were interacting with the people in your film and how I was part of that, I was addressed as somebody in the crowd and as someone that could make a difference. And my decision would affect what would happen to the people. And it was a young black girl. It was what was happening with America and young black people in particular. She goes, I was triggered. She goes, Everything that I thought I had um, I dealt with in Argentina, I'd actually suppressed it and it all came flooding out and I had to deal with it. And I was, she said, I have to, when I was talking on the street corner, she kept saying, I have to go get a plane, but we're on the street corner for 45 minutes. And she felt she was compelled to tell me how profound the experience had affected her and how she had had to deal with lots of things she hadn't um, realized she had to deal with. And that talk really crystallized the fact of that's when I started to get my fiance involved in that if I was to ever miss somebody, like maybe I was talking to someone else or gone to the loo, that I had to make, I had this responsibility to, en to enable people to go through this process, but not alone. I had to be there as a support. So it's very much an emotional, spiritual um, um, journey that the people are on. It starts in tech and it starts in film. If they enable themselves to go through this process of moving through fear, it, it ends in a much more sense of empowerment and self-awareness kind of state for them. That's I want to go I want to go backwards for a second. We've kind of been shooting backwards and forwards in time, which is which is actually how I love to do it. But let's go backwards again to a moment you've talked about where you were stood in your boss's office trying to hand in. Trying, I love the word that you use, trying, trying to hand in your notice 
on what had been, you know, a pretty glamorous and successful career. So what what were you doing? What was that career? And can you can you talk about the period of time that led to that decision? <laughs> okay. So I'm um, you know, uh I'm like I would say um a super hard working class uh, black chick in the UK, um, kind of first generation. And I, um, I have some very good networks, work very hard, um, good connects, and I carved out a good, successful career in the music industry, directing music videos, music commercials. And I got to the point, because I've always been into spirituality and well-being and meditation, that I came to the conclusion that this is hardcore superficial. Like, you know, how many more parties can I go to? Like, this is really not what I was brought to do. And also, more importantly, I became very aware of the power of media. And I was like, hell no, am I going to use this kind of alchemy to um, disempower people? I need to figure out a way. This is about 15 years ago. I need to figure out a way how to use this alchemy to empower people. I have no idea how it would work. I think it involves technology because at that time I felt that two things. One, this was even just, this was way before an iPhone. This is, I think I just got my um, email, my first email account. And this, you know, MySpace, you know, that was probably the extent of what I was using on the internet. But I felt that technology and how people were interacting with technology was going to be the future. And also... My other point was that people would want to be part of a storytelling experience. They didn't want to be passive observers to storytelling. You know, that there's always going to be linear film, but people wanted to be an integral component of what their stories were. And I had this thing inside me that just wouldn't go away, and this voice. And I had to, um, um, what's the word? I had to kind of unshackle myself from my glamorous superficial existence <laughs> in order to pursue this 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 new life this new me that I needed to become to create this reality I love I love the language you use about that time when you said you had to you had to run an, an erase I'm gonna get this right an erase and install on your own mind like, and <laughs> and download courage. So why did that feel necessary? Why did it feel oh like you had to God. erase and install your mind? I love that you really proper know my talks. I really appreciate that because um, I really appreciate the fact that you're bringing these words back to me because these are things which are consistently run through my work as well, that I have to do everything on myself first, then kind of replicate the process through art and tech and storytelling and if I do it on myself first I know it goddamn works you know I know that if I can use this methodology to transform my life and then I kind of put this same process and with some touch of alchemy into um, the structure of art and tech and AI and um, neuroscience that it will goddamn work on you so I realized that and also this terminology, like I saw myself as if I was like a mobile device, what operating system would I be running? You know, am I running Karen at that? It's say if it was a day. Am I running Karen 2018, 29th of November? Or am I kind of stuck a little bit 
in 2017 with some issues I might have in, say, relationships, say, or 2005 or 2000 or two, or 1990 with some issues regarding my youth and my um, my my older part of my childhood, say, am I kind of stuck with things? Am I traumatized? Have I got habitual behavior that I'm stuck with? Or am I someone that is evolving every day and quantifying and evaluating why I'm doing certain things? Why am I with certain people? Why am I spending my time doing that? Is it is it moving towards the person I need to become? So I see my belief system as an operating system that I need to update on a regular basis, on a daily basis, in order to, if I see my body as a mobile device, to make sure that the um, I can get the best out of the processor. Because if I'm running a really super old um, operating system on a brand new computer or mobile device, it's not going to be at its optimum and I need to be at my optimum. So I, I came up with that analogy. Um, actually, I think I came up with that off the back when I was in Australia. I think I don't think I don't know if I went with that analogy because I really had to go deep. And um, I also it's combined with my kind of passion for art and tech, but also my my knowledge of transformation having done had, and doing still doing parkour is that you need it's all down to your beliefs. It's all down to your beliefs and your commitment. And I basically had to update my operating system to become the person I needed to be, to be. What was the first, what was the first step in that? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's not as simple as you know, your iPhone. It's going to sound very oversimplistic, but you know, your iPhone, you, you press install updates, you go and make a cup of tea. I'm, I'm guessing it's a little bit more involved than that. <laughs> that is such a good question. So that is such a great question. So for me to hand in my notice, um, I would say every step I took along that room towards my boss, if it was six steps, like each step was a year of my life, trying to um, inveigle my way out of my, the, the trappings that I've created mentally and psychologically in my life. Like well, maybe the first step was, oh, um, I this is who I am. I'm this person that drives this. B series, um, three series um, uh, convertible BMW. And I wear these designer clothes. This is who I am. I'm that chick. So one step was like, no, I'm not. There's more to me than that chick. And the next step is, well, if I leave this job, um, how will I live? How will I pay my rent? You know, um, I, okay, I won't be that person anymore, but I've still got to live. I've still got to survive. I don't even know what I'm going to do. And the next step was, you'll figure it out. Like I spent like four years um, creating a contingency plan so I have enough money for a year. And I was like, okay, you're gonna fi you figured that out. And the next step was that, um, but you, you don't even know what you're gonna do. You have no idea. And it's like, well, I believe I'm committed to that process. And that's back to that thing about the entrepreneur said as well, that we don't know how we're gonna do it, but the commitment is enough, you know? And then, you know, the, the, the other three steps was probably um, just that of the of things which I didn't even know was to come. I didn't know that I was going to have to sell that beautiful car that I was attached to and that I believe was a part of what well, I kind of knew it wasn't, but was a, still a part of my identity that I was going to not only um, lose the car, but I haven't had the car since. <laughs> I, haven't been, I, didn't, I haven't been able to really afford the car or so... Um, 
the kind of ideology of a car, like all the money that a car uses, like if it gets towed, if you get a parking ticket, the MOT is like that. That's a certain like I would say now um, prison of commitments that that money could be spent elsewhere on pursuing my dreams. You know, if I don't have the car, I can probably work one day less a week at on freelance work and I can spend that time on myself and that within um in the, within six months I had no car but I have a bike and I still cycle and I love cycling I had always had a bike but now I don't I love I've always loved cycling so it's like my in it, it I was I had to um and I had to stop um that all the nice shops I go to get food now I, I had to spend like the next five months going to the cheaper shops to get the food but while I was doing that I was kind of quantifying those are the last three steps that I don't know what's going to happen but I'm committed to the process and then what happens is I would go to the cheaper shops to get the food I didn't really have the money for clothes and then when I got the money for the clothes I was like well I need to be selective what I'm buying you know am I buying this for my talk or am I buying this I don't need to go out so much because I love to work and I love to train maybe I get a new pair of trainers well before I just buy something maybe because I like it now I'm more um um, everything is more purpose driven in my life. Every decision is quantified because I had to go back to order to go forward. You know, the person I had to become to do this is a complete, the essence of me is the same, but the last three steps was a commitment to becoming this, the person I needed to be and being committed to that journey because that's a journey which was born in faith and people like say people in my life, half those people in my life are gone because they didn't believe in that journey. Um, and they told me, they were quite happy to tell me that what am I doing It's never going to work. <laughs> so I realized that, you know, I believe this will work. So that means that you, you and I won't work. So the last three steps of that walk was commitment to becoming the new person that I am now. With, with everything that you've Combine combine everything that you have learned about neurogaming and neurostorytelling with everything that you just said. How do you how do you now feel about the human capacity to change or rewire at an accelerated rate? I mean, you were literally just talking about six like walking six steps there, and and the changes that had to take place in your brain between getting you from point A to point B. You've watched people go through riots and learn to consciously cultivate characteristics like empathy and authority in a matter of minutes. Do you, do you now believe that, the, that human beings are able to rewire, if not immediately, but at much faster rates than we have previously been led to believe? Oh, my gosh. Our capacity as a human being is way, 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 way beyond our expectation of what we believe we can achieve. It's way even beyond, I'm, I can probably kind of um, give you kind of like validate it to an, a point, but there's points that I can't even. So give, I'll give you an example, um, epigenetics, that talks, that's a science that talks about how your emotions affect the genes in your body and how your belief affects your, your immune system. So, um, and that's also in keeping with the retreat I was on recently in Bali, because I like to move with what I'm doing beyond theory into practice and everything that I do. But epigenetics talks about the placebo effect and how that's why people can take a sugar tablet 
and then they become cured because their brain has set off the chemical in their body. You know, these are things which is like, isn't really discussed. So to me, my objective of the kind of the final project that I'm making my next riot now, um, part riot part two, is called, is actually titled Consensus Gentium. And that's a Latin terminology, meaning that because everybody believes it, it must be true. And what I'm going to show you is that you have to create your own reality through your own truth. And it's not down to what everybody else believes. Because through you believing it and being committed to it, you'll be able to create your own reality. And whether that's making yourself better through a placebo tablet, maybe that's through moving on for a relationship or a job that doesn't work for you, or maybe that's through changing the world or changing people's consciousness through what I'm doing through storytelling with art and tech. We, it's, we're, our capability is way beyond our wildest imagination. The thing is that people just aren't looking into that. They're looking in on their mobile phone. They're looking on their social media. My belief is that most, much of what can be achieved um, through technology can be achieved through our personal development. So say that um, I was doing some um, spiritual kind of well meditation work the other day. And part of that was, oh, I need to contact this person, this person, this person that I met on the retreat because I felt really empowered by them. And they are, um, they've got great energy. And I feel that we're going to just devolve together or work together. Later that evening, the, the same chick, um, I call her Sunshine, she texted me. And I was like, Sunshine, I was just thinking I need to contact you. I didn't need to text her. <laughs> I just sent the energy out there and she got the message. <laughs> and, you know, that's very superficial. And people might say, well, I don't believe that. But it's what you believe. <laughs> and um, if you don't believe me, try it. You know, Capetius, a philosopher, has a quote, one of my favorite quotes. Those that think they can and those that think they can't are both right. Which basically, whatever you, what basically means whatever you choose to believe becomes your reality. So I think to answer your question, the sky is not even the limit when it comes to human capability. But we are putting that limitation on ourselves. If you, if you could design, so let's yeah, let's take that yeah. thought that that, yeah. that the sky is the limit, and you know, the sky I'm, is not the limit. Julie. It's not the limit. There's sorry, no limit. Don't even put the sky as a limitation on us <laughs> if the sky if the sky is not the limit if the sky is not the limit then 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 going back again to that to the woman yeah who's who's crossing the room or to any human being that's crossing yes. any room to make any kind of substantial change whether you're the ceo yes. of, a, of a multinational whether you're you're leaving a relationship that doesn't work whether you are yes. just going to have a difficult conversation yes if you if you could design a neuro gaming and mm -hmm. neuro storytelling mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. for that woman in that moment or for anyone yes. looking to yes. take a leap, yes. what would it look like? That's going to be consensus gentium. <laughs> That's what it So what does like. it look like? So consensus gentium is that, um, wow, you're getting a proper exclusive here. I've been working on this just yesterday. Consensus gentium is um, a user experience that, enables you to shift your perception um, uh, through moving through fear to make you, to raise your consciousness. 
Um, and how it does that is it's going to put you in, a, in an environment, a film, a 360-degree film, which is a sci-fi in the future. And what's going to happen is you're going, it's a world governed by artificial intelligence. And you're going to see how you're going to experience two major things. One, the AI that you come into contact with because there'll be less people, it's going to reveal back, you're going to see bias in the AI and it's going to reveal back your bias. So that's your subconscious behavior. And then you're going to become aware of how your environment affects you. So the media that you interact with is going to be like on steroids with the media now. So you won't have like a handheld, you're kind of going to be in a bubble. You're going to be immersed in a bubble of your own personal bubble of information and entertainment that other people can overlap or come into, or you can go into theirs. But when you walk down the street, all this information is something which is your is all around you, but there's not really a physical format. It's like, um, um, like an, um, and like when you see on like minority reports where it's like a screen, but it's not a screen. It's like a, it's an information kind of wave around you and that you're going to experience the world as this person, but you're going to have opportunities within the experience, within the game to experience other people's worlds and other people's perceptions. And your objective when you get into the, is that you're, is that you've got to find somebody in this world in the future. It's like a police state and people are trying to get out of this technology governed system. And there's this, there's a resistance movement and they're looking for someone called savior. And that person's going to be able to lead the people through. And you're going to come into contact with lots of different types of people. You're going to come into contact with people who are technos, who are kind of, really into tech like maybe they're part cyborg or maybe they have relationships with computers or you know they're just people who love tech or maybe they have implants in them and then you're going to come into contact with other people like techno activists who hack the system and then you oh, other people called italites who are naturalists um who don't really get involved in artificial stimulants and kind of work under the radar and everybody's kind of looking for this savior person because they know this person can help break through the system. And what you're going to realize as you go through is that if you get to the end, is that you are the savior person and you're the only person that can save yourself. You, you've said before that, because reading about you and, and listening, to, listening to what you're saying now, one of the questions that I had was, you know, what's what's the first step for someone to take tomorrow? You don't, you know, they don't have access to Riot. They don't have access to this tech. And you had said that one of the first steps in, in an interview that I think that I read is becoming hyper aware of what is trying to influence you in any given oh. moment. Oh, my God. I love your recess, Julie. I, I don't remember saying that, but I know I said that. But I thought that is like amazing. Wow, that's so cool that I said that. I, I think I, I'm obviously half cyborg. I'll take that. Yeah, but yeah, that's kind of... So there's two things that I would really recommend you do that have worked for me that I feel are quite universal. One is just turn off this interview, like seriously, and just go spend some time on your own. Turn off the tech, turn off the TV, turn off the iPad, the iPhone, all of it. Just go, just 
let your thoughts come through. If you can't go for a walk or go for a run, jump in the shower, wash up without a stimulant around you, without the Netflix playing. Allow your thoughts to bubble up to the surface. Allow yourself to have some free thoughts that's not made up, that's not influenced by your social media feed. Just think, conscious stream, just, just stop, just do it. Just, and if you can't be stimulated, if you have to always be stimulated, realize and recognize that is an issue in itself. If you can't be in a room without Netflix playing or your iPhone on, something is not right. Why do you need this constant distraction from yourself? That's the first thing is to just stop. If you've got to keep your body moving, that's fine. But just because I have to keep my body moving, but just allow your brain not to be stimulated, overstimulated, over-influenced, over-hoodwinked. Your attention is your most valuable commodity. You have to place it very deliberately and very carefully, and you have to filter it. And then from that, just listen to yourself. That's it. I can't, I won't even say read a book. I would just say your internal voice will gradually start to become more than a murmur. And that will be able to guide you. A couple of final questions. You, ha- you also said that to you, that the future is brain hacking. That for the past 20 years, we've obsessed about the fitness of the body. It's on our phones. I mean, I'm literally wearing my Fitbit. As we, as we speak, I tap it twice to see how many steps I have not done today. And, but the, you believe the future will not be about the fitness of the body. The future will be about the fitness of the mind. What, what will that look like? Like in your, in your mind's eye, what does that look like? Does it look like we're tracking the fitness of our minds on our Apple Watch? Like how do you see that playing out? Um, that's a really good question. I think that there's a lot of value put on the physicality of the body, but it's the psychology of being able to move through obstacles and move through fear that really, to me, determines a certain um, attitude to success, a certain resilience. But that is something which doesn't seem to be measured in any capacity. And that, to me, that will have to be attached to fitness at some point because that is, it's almost like when you look at someone's body, this is like parkour, it's like it's an iceberg. You see the top of the iceberg and go, wow. If there's someone saying doing an Ironman or doing the surfing or doing parkour, you see the top of the iceberg, but it's really the bottom of the iceberg with all the psychological work has, has gone through to get to the body. But that's not always the case because maybe you have people in just doing very basic fitness things and that's what they're focused on is the body. They haven't evolved their mind. So I don't know if I can say if it would be on the extension of an app that they'll have more neuroscientists working with physical app app developers who are currently focused on the physical form. They'll start to evaluate the parts of the brain which overcome obstacles and they'll be looking to um, give you points on that like, oh, your your, your, um, resilience to overcoming obstacles has gone up by 10 points. Um, You know, I think uh, that's something which might be fused into technology. But just in terms of maybe your personal trainer or the person at gym will start having different terminology about we're now looking at your cognitive skill development as well as your physical skill development, which is something which has always been a part of parkour that we just always train cognitively, which is like the skills of our brain. But we we just do it. We don't have to kind of 
make a big thing of it because we know it's true. But I think other people, particularly commercial industry, would latch onto it and make a big thing because they're going to realise, oh, shit, we, we can make money out of this. What are the that part of parkour, the, the core philosophies of cognitive training in parkour? Can you quickly, what are those? The best way to give an example of the cognitive component of parkour is an example of breaking a jump. So a breaking of a jump is a jump you're doing for the first time, something you haven't done before. Maybe it's a different distance further than you would normally do, or it's a different type of surface, um, or it's an awkward type of jump, so it's challenging. It's basically something new for you. But you've done something similar and comparable or you just know you can do it. It's within your capability, but it's kind of on the edges of it. So it's a good challenge. So when you see it, you kind of go, you get a good feeling inside, like, yep, I can evolve if I do that. So you have to draw upon your cognitive skills. You have to figure out a way to move through that fear. Maybe you do the jump, but you bail at the last minute. So you don't really do it, but you've touched the surface and you've checked the distance. You just haven't done the jump so you know okay I can actually make that it's going to be a challenge but I if I put my hand here and hand here so you you're building up to it you're breaking the jump down at, in a kind of um, problem solving way um, so that's where you're using your cognitive faculties to do that through parkour and then what happens is once you've done the jump you've two things specifically have happened one is that you've now evolved from a person who doesn't do that jump. So your identity has become a person that does do that type of jump. So you've moved past your comfort zone and your sense of identity of who you are has um, evolved. And the second thing is that this new series of problem solving um, uh, mental capacity that you've now moved into is something you can take out of the parkour training and into your everyday life. These skills that you're evolving neurologically is not compartmentalized to parkour. It's now in your brain. And that's the same um, approach that I used when I gave my notice in. I saw it as um, a jump and I approached it in the same way and I built up to it over time. So that when I made that, um, I broke that jump of um, leaving my job, it was like another leap of faith. Because you get to a point when you break a sand down, break it down, break it down, you go, you know, I can do it. Now I just have to take that leap of faith. And then what happens is that you start to understand that these leap of faiths is what is the whole point of life. But that you become comfortable with making them. You don't become, you become, you're still, the point is that you're still fearful, but you make the jump anyway. Where the point is that most people, they become fearful and they step off the wall and they go home. And you can't do that with your life. You have to build up to it, be as prepared as you can be, and then get to the point where you just have to make the leap of faith. My final question. It's the question I, I ask at the, at the end of every the end of every podcast. It's if I could put in front of you a stage and a give you a microphone and in front of you I could somehow put every single person you would ever want to influence. What's the, what's the one thing? What's the one thing you would want them to know? We're not supposed to have all the answers. That's why we, step, we put the first step into the journey to find the answers. But people, most people are 
to think they have to have all the answers before they start the journey. And the whole point of the journey is to find the answer. And once you do that, you can confidently and tentatively at the same time put your plant your foot on that step. And then you'll, you become accustomed to just going, I don't know how, but I'm going to try. I don't know how, that's the whole point, as opposed to I don't know how, and then you just stand there. It's just, that's the point of living. I had this award. Um, someone contacted me about an award that I was going to get in New York. And um, this is about a year and a half ago, and I was actually quite broke. And um, they just contacted me at the blue and said, hey, um, oh, we've got some great news. You're going to get this award in New York next week. And I was like, I said, wow, it's a choose. And I woke up Wednesday and I went, I'm going to be in New York next Wednesday. And I said to my flatmate, I'm going to be in New York next Wednesday. She knew I was broke. And I spent like the next three days um, contacting social media marketing companies to do with um, airlines saying, hey, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I'm doing talks and I'm this. And, you know, if you give me the ticket. And I almost got a couple, but then they said, it's not enough time. And I realized, okay, I've got my food shopping money for the month. I'm going to use my food shopping money for the month. I'm still short 200. And then I was thinking about, then I went to the Friday night. I need to think about every single person I know who might know someone at airline. And there was about six people. And I said, I call five. And then the last one I said, I call in the morning. And when I woke up, the sixth person had called me and I hadn't spoken to them in six months, um, about three months. And I said to them, hey, that's so crazy that you called me. I was about to call you. And they said, what are you doing? I said, I need the contact. You know loads of people. And she said, no, I, I can't get you that connection. But, but what do you need? I said, I need the rest of the money for the flight. And she said, I'll lend you the money. And I was like, are you sure? She goes, yeah, no problem. Because I knew that if I was in that room in New York for two hours, I was going to be the belle of the ball. And whatever happened in the world, I needed to be in that room. So next Wednesday, I, I, when I was there, I used my half of my food money for the month and my borrowed my money from my friend. And when I left that room, I had three um, opportunities that manifested into very, very, very big opportunities. And from all those opportunities, other things spiraled. From each of those three, so I got two more opportunities from each. But I had to believe that I had to be in that room and I had to make sure I was in that room. So it was that commitment and that belief um, and that knowing that then became a reality. So you need to, that's what you need. To, that's, if I hadn't been in that room, if I had thought, you know what, I haven't got the money. <laughs> or, you know, I probably may not be speaking to you now, Julie. I'm sure we would have hunted you down some way. <laughs> Yeah, but I may not have been on that, those platforms. You see what I'm saying? Because how this works is like magic. It's like, a, I believe in the law of momentum. You do one thing, someone sees you, they contact you. Then somebody else, you're on someone else's um, um, radar. And my social media is quite lazy because I'm so busy doing so much work. So it's often not up to date. So it's not, most people will get their, a lot of their business through their social media. But mine is like just through all this stuff that people see me somewhere and then they contact someone and then someone calls me from a different country and say, my job was to track you down. Can I fly you to Berlin? That's like an email I got a week ago. Someone saw you doing a talk. My job was to track you down. I went to your website. Can you come to Berlin next week? You know, this is what, because I'm on the radar, I'm on the platforms because I believe. So just believe. 
I love that. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there because I think that that's an infinitely powerful place to leave it. Thank you so much for Thank you. taking the time and for allowing us. I mean, you're very you're very kindly talking about people that stalk you and for allowing us to stalk you for for, <laughs> oh, no. for many months please, to set up this please interview. Please don't say that. We're, you're, you know what, Julie? I don't think you realise it, but you're also part of the invisible movement. You're just a different arm. I'll take that on. I will take that on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you so much for your time, Julie. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.